Well, hello, and welcome to Inner Journey Podcast, an effort toward mental, emotional, or spiritual relief for you during quarantine. May it be so. I'm Dawn Smelser, and today's episode will feature my favorite person on the face of this earth, my husband, Eric Smelser. So please stay tuned until the very end to hear our conversation. He works for a nonprofit that strives to end homelessness in Philadelphia, is the lead singer of a Rage Against the Machine tribute band, and he makes knives. For those reasons and more, he is the perfect guest for today's episode. If you listened to the last episode, you heard me introduce some squid facts. And man, are squids interesting! A little recap for those who are just tuning in to this episode and are not familiar with other episodes. I drove past an SUV with squids painted all over it that had a message written on the side that said if you want to receive some squid facts over text, to text the word squid to the phone number listed, and I did. And the squid facts just kept coming. The most mind-blowing squid fact to date for me personally is this one. Some squids have been on the earth longer than trees. My mind is officially blown now by these squid facts. Texting the squid mobile number was by far one of the best decisions I've made in the last week. Friends, there's going to be some loaded subject matter today. And my hope is to be as clear and as articulate as I possibly can with it, so as to invite more contemplation and discernment into a subject that is deeply divisive all over the world. That subject is God. Now, I've used the word several times in this podcast, and it's worth unpacking. Personally, I don't carry very much baggage around the word, as I didn't grow up in a religious household, really. But more and more, I'm becoming acutely aware of why folks are triggered by the word, and why it needs some unpacking if I'm going to continue to use it. At the very least, I think we as people need to stop linking it to a masculine pronoun, or any pronoun for that matter. Just my opinion. Anyway, I'm going to start here with this piece, excerpted from Alice Walker's We Are the Ones We've Been Waiting For, Inner Light in a Time of Darkness. It was first published by the New Press on November 1st, 2006. It starts, It is the worst of times. It is the best of times. Try as I might, I cannot find a more appropriate opening for this volume. It helps tremendously that these words have been spoken before, and thanks to Charles Dickens, written at the beginning of a tale of two cities. Perhaps they've been spoken, written, thought an endless number of times throughout human history. It is the worst of times because it feels as though the very earth is being stolen from us, by us, the land and air poisoned, the water polluted, the animals disappeared, humans degraded and misguided. War is everywhere. It is the best of times because we've entered a period that if we can bring ourselves to pay attention is of great clarity as to cause and effect. A blessing when we consider how much suffering human beings have endured in previous millennia without a clue to its cause. Gods and goddesses were no doubt created to fill this gap. Because we can see now into every crevice of the globe and because we are free to explore previously unexplored crevices in our own hearts and minds, it is inevitable that everything we have needed to comprehend in order to survive, 
everything we have needed to understand the most basic of ways will be illuminated now. We have only to open our eyes and awaken to our predicament. We see that we are, alas, a huge part of the problem. However, we live in a time of global enlightenment. This alone should make us shout for joy. It is as if ancient graves hidden deep in the shadows of the psyche and the earth are breaking open of their own accord, unwilling to be silent any longer, incapable of silence. No leader or people of any country will be safe from these upheavals that lead to exposure, no matter how much the news is managed or how long people's grievances have been kept quiet. Human beings may well be unable to break free of the dictatorship of greed that spreads like a miasma over the world, but no longer will we be an inarticulate and ignorant humanity, confused by our enslavement to superior cruelty and weaponry. We will know at least a bit of the truth about what's going on, and that will set us free. Perhaps not free in the old way of thinking about freedom as literal escape from enslavement in its various forms, but free in our understanding that our domination is not a comment on our worth. It is an awesome era in which to live. It was the poet June Jordan who wrote, We are the ones we've been waiting for. Sweet Honey in the Rock turned those words into a song. Hearing this song, I've witnessed thousands of people rise to their feet in joyful recognition and affirmation. We are the ones we've been waiting for because we are able to see what's happening with a much greater awareness than our parents or grandparents or our ancestors could see. This does not mean we believe, having seen the greater truth of how all oppression is connected, how pervasive and how unrelenting, that we can fix things. But some of us are not content to have a gap in opportunity and income that drives a wedge between rich and poor, causing the rich to become ever more callous and complacent and the poor to become ever more wretched and humiliated. Not willing to ignore starving and brutalized children. Not willing to let women be stoned or mutilated without protest. Not willing to stand quietly by as farmers are destroyed by people who have never farmed and plants are engineered to self-destruct. Not willing to disappear into our flower gardens Mercedes-Benzes, or Sylvan Lawns. We have wanted all our lives to know that Earth, who has somehow obtained human beings as her custodians, was also capable of creating humans who could minister to her needs and the needs of her creation. We are the ones. <sighs> Wow. Do you ever come across writings or songs that have been around for a while just as you are truly ready to receive their message? Just when your consciousness can handle the message? Just when you yourself are becoming strong enough, whether you think you are or not, to face the discernment process or the surrender that the message demands of you? Though the whole excerpt, in my opinion, is brilliant and relevant, the part I'm thinking of in particular is this. Gods and goddesses were no doubt created to fill this gap. Ironically, that was just what a friend of mine was saying this morning as he dropped off some smoked blackfish he caught spearfishing the other day in the ocean. Shout out, Ben, at Farmhouse, if you're listening. It was delicious. 
the thing is that because we're all coming at words from our own experiences of those words and we aren't agreeing on a common meaning before we use them, we're not having a conversation with one another that leads us to any common understanding about the essence the words are trying to represent. That essence, I believe, is self-evident and cannot be captured in words. But for the sake of transparency, let's look at some of the words we commonly use and check out their origins. Let's start with the word God. The earliest written form of the Germanic word was Gudan. And there are two theories about that origin, which is still rather uncertain. One theory is that it could be from Proto-Indo-European gal, which means to call or invoke. Another, it could come from Proto-Indo-European gu, which means to pour as the entity to which libations are offered. So it turns out the word God is not a name at all. Let's look at the word divine from the Latin divinus, meaning godlike. That's not very helpful. Okay, let's look at the word spirit. It comes from Latin spirare, which means breathe. Okay, this is getting interesting. And it's similar to the Hebrew word ruah, which means the force emanating from God. And then there's the actual name for God in Hebrew that according to Jewish law is forbidden to speak because it's too sacred. About which Richard Rohr, who's an American author, spiritual writer, and Franciscan friar based in Albuquerque, says, This I cannot emphasize enough, the importance of the Jewish revelation of the name of God. As Christians spell and pronounce it, the word is Yahweh. But in Hebrew, it is the sacred tetragrammaton, Y-H-V-H. I'm told that those are the only consonants in the Hebrew alphabet that are not articulated with the lips and tongue. Rather, they are breathed with the tongue relaxed and the lips apart. Yahweh. It was considered a literally unspeakable word for Jews. And any attempt to know what they were talking about was in vain. All attempts to fully think God are in vain. The divine entity was kept mysterious and unavailable to the mind. When Moses asked for the divinity's name, he received only the phrase that translates, I am who I am. This unspeakability has long been recognized, but now we know it goes even deeper. Formally, the name of God was not, could not be spoken at all, only breathed. Many are convinced that its correct pronunciation is an attempt to replicate and imitate the very sound of inhalation and exhalation. Therefore, the one thing we do every moment of our lives is to speak the name of God. This makes the name of God our first and last word as we enter and leave the world. War continues, I've taught this to people in many countries and it changes their faith and prayer lives in substantial ways. I remind people that there is no Islamic, Christian, or Jewish way of breathing. There is no American, African, or Asian way of breathing. There is no rich, poor, gay, or straight way of breathing. The playing field is utterly leveled. 
It is all one and the same air, and this divine wind blows where it will. No one can control this spirit. Or also said, all people have access to their true self from their very first inhalation and exhalation, which is the very sound of the sacred. Mm, I'll take a breath to that. And it's particularly interesting to me because it echoes yoga philosophy, namely that of the word in Sanskrit, Atman, which means the self. This is what I mean when I say that the essence is self-evident. The problem, I believe, is that we're not conscious of it. We're still not fully awake. The late comedian George Carlin said, they call it the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. Wikipedia says consciousness at its simplest is sentience or awareness of internal or external existence. Despite centuries of analysis, definitions, explanations, and debates by philosophers and scientists, consciousness remains puzzling and controversial, being at once the most familiar and the most mysterious aspect of our lives. Well, my teacher would say that it is being aware of our awareness. And friends, I'm here to tell you that once you start doing that, two things happen. Well, a lot more than two things happen, but here's two things that happen. One, shit gets really trippy, so you have to stay steady in your mind. And two, you begin to interrupt unnecessary suffering. About the human gods and goddesses that were made up for humanity, I think the reasons were benevolent, benign, and malevolent. The benevolent reason maybe was to help humans fathom the unfathomable essence, as in the million names for God in the Hindu religion. Benign, in the sense of we know not what we do. In other words, in our ignorance, we project onto others what we are ourselves. So of course we do that also in the personification of the Most High. And malevolent in that the stories have us looking to a God that will save us no matter what shit we get ourselves into instead of instructing us to be a people who use all experiences for awakening. By emphasizing stories of an only external Godhead, instead of drawing in a breathable essence that empowers our growth and discernment, we create a parental structure out of God for whom we have to behave, and like a child who has mostly been told what not to do, we fall in line until no one is looking, at which point we exert our power on those even more powerless than ourselves. Okay, I think it's time to call our guest, my hubby. Hello? Hey, lover, are you ready for a squid fact? Yeah. <laughs> Did you know Hawaiian bobtail squid can glow thanks to their relationship with a bioluminescent species of bacteria? I had no idea. <laughs> yes, it's true. They keep those bacteria in a specialized pouch called a light organ. <laughs> Doesn't it remind you of Star Wars lightsabers? It seems like something that would be in Star Wars hanging in a corner, you know, some animal hanging in a corner that's all lit up with a light organ. <laughs> On the planet with Luke Skywalker, where the sound is in the middle of nowhere. Hey, um, do you want to come upstairs so the sound is better? That sounds like a good idea. Okay. Be right there. 
Hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to Inner Journey Podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Is this new? I haven't heard of this. <laughs> <laughs> haven't you wondered where I've been? <laughs> oh, so I introduced you in a few different ways, but one way I didn't introduce you was that you were up until recently, um, pretty much a lifelong Christian. Yeah. How many years would you say you were in the church? Um, I guess it was as long as I can remember. I, I grew up with my parents having me go to church and stuff, so I don't remember a time when I wasn't. In your 46? Yeah. <laughs> I did tell listeners that you are lead singer for a Rage Against the Machine tribute band. Yeah. And I mean, so I guess that means you're familiar with all the songs. Yeah. Do you ever hear a song, um, Killing in the Name of? <laughs> of course. <laughs> so my question is, I feel like Rage Against the Machine has a pretty good repu- reputation for standing up for people who are oppressed and for like being pretty much truth tellers and the Christian church has a less positive reputation like the lyrics of that song say so like I don't know I think rage is like the good guys and the church is like the bad guys so how do you reconcile I mean you're not in the church now but you were before do you see it as like good guys and bad guys? Sort of, but I think like there's a, the church is like, you know, to be fair, is not a monolithic organization with, um, with just a single sort of ideology. Yeah, so I think Rage Against the Machine was um, speaking particularly to the conservative Christian movement, which tends to be focused more on conservative ideals than I would argue than Christian ideals. One of the things that I've learned being part of the church for a long time is that the, the different aspects of the church have been pretty heavily influenced by the context that they're in. And I think the American Christian church is significantly influenced by capitalism and conservatism um, and has been morphed into that uh, way of thinking and sort of gone away from a more Jesus-focused belief system. And you can look at the history of the church and see all kinds of examples of that throughout history. I guess I never asked you this. This is funny. been married for a while. <laughs> What's your reflection on Jesus now, having left the organization of Christianity? I was thinking about it a little bit, about how Jesus kind of had two main focuses, which were to love God and love your neighbor. Um, and so his whole thing was, what he preached mostly was about love. And I think when you look at it from that point of view, Christianity's kind of, you know, or at least Jesus is kind of an awesome guy. I think where Jesus gets a little hard to follow is he also goes into talking about like he's the only way to the, to, to the Father or to God. And that stuff gets a little, that has brought crusades and... Um, this sort of thinking that everyone else is wrong and Christians are the only ones that are right. But if you just look at the fundamental teachings of Jesus, to love God and love your neighbor, those are pretty wonderful ways to live your life. Do you think the I am the only way that it's possible was a mistranslation from the, what is it, Aramaic? Yeah, Greek, I don't know for sure. But um, sure, and I think it was also... You know, I think one of the things is the Bible, I don't take the Bible as written, I think some people would say the Bible is written in a, by God, essentially, and it does, it's totally infallible, and I don't buy that. I think the Bible was written as a recollection of what Jesus said many, many years later with people that had their own sort of interest in promoting something and we're developing a, you know, a religious following. And so um, I 
I also sort of wonder if that was inserted into, even if it's a direct translation, if it was kind of inserted into the message to sort of gather people a little bit more, you know, put a little spin on it. By the way, we're the only way that this is going to work out for you. Mm. Um, yeah, I wonder if that was really a key part of Jesus' message or a part of his message at all. I asked you this the other day, and I'll just ask it for our listeners, but do you find yourself in more or less like God consciousness? Meaning, when I use the word consciousness, I mean awareness of thinking of God, or even take the word away, awareness of the essence of a larger reality, more or less without the organization of the church. And I, I say that, I guess I should say that to my Christian friends who are listening, that there's not a value judgment being placed on involvement with a church, just um, I was curious to hear your experience. Yeah, for a long time I've felt that, uh, or I, when I've felt God, or the experience of God that has been in the moments when I feel the most present. And I think in the years basically leading up to leaving the church, and particularly since leaving the church, I find myself spending a lot more time in places where I feel much more present. And I think in reflection that's made me think that a lot of the things that we did in the church were not particularly focused on being present in the moment and with myself and with um, even with those around me that was sort of more of a doing kind of thing and so I think without that overlay of needing to accomplish something or do something regarding God it makes it so that um, walking through the woods is an opportunity to just feel present and feel God's presence and be in the presence of God or at the end of a yoga class in Shavasana my I'm much more able to be I think part of it is practice of doing that I'm doing things like taking yoga classes or walking in the woods more often or just doing things that allow me to be present purposefully because and because I feel that presence more I'm more geared towards doing that and want to practice it more often I feel like I've, um, I'm more in that space than I was when I was part of the church. Mm, there's so many things I could say in relationship to that. Even, you know, I let myself wonder a lot you know, and move back to contemplative thinking, which I think, you know, all the doing, whether it's like, doing even good deeds and good service but always getting involved with doing 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 and like even all the distractions of devices and stuff as I let myself consider the essence of the divine I'll stop using the word God for a minute um, and and I allow myself to not have to be good which there is even though I didn't have a lot of religious baggage growing up because I didn't grow up in the church I mean we went to Sunday school my parents they went to Catholic school but we didn't have a weekly church visit um, on the regular it was like more weddings and funerals and stuff so even still I did I guess from my parents inherit the transactional relationship with a divine source that said if I'm good um, if I behave good things will happen to me if bad things to ha happen to me then I would immediately go into transactional prayer that was something on the along the lines of God if you do this for me I'll never fuck up again and so in the last few years especially I find myself returning back to thought I had as a kid around the divine. And those thoughts were like, 
sense of omnipresence and this benevolent force, like a playground kind of thing, a way that even I could like move in co-creation with this way. It's more like, I guess what it felt like then and what it feels like now again is like more of Taoism mm-hmm. or even like the way or Sufism in that this love relationship. And I wonder if your mind has gotten like started to hold this concept of the divine more loosely and taken it out of personification into more experiential into a more experiential felt sense. What you were saying made me think of something that I had, sort of a process I went through in relationship to sort of God and that that concept of goodness that you're saying. And one of the things that um, years and years ago, I don't even remember when this it was, but um, came to understand that like the concept of hell is not something that, first of all, is not, I mean, if just to go with Christianity, it's not biblical. But also you can trace that back to when it was kind of made up and it was it was sort of put out there as a punishment system concept. But then you also look further down the line and you see that heaven is kind of that same construct. It's not something that is particularly even biblical. Um, it's just something that was developed after the fact. And so when you take away those two concepts and just think about like our existence right now as opposed to this kind of capitalist way of looking at things where we're always looking at like if I do something now I get something out of it later but it's just this more of a focus of how do I exist in the present moment how do I react you know interact with people in ways that are kind how do I care for myself you know that idea of love as being sort of the predominant way of understanding things uh, and the way that we relate to each other and it really does put this the sense of the divine becomes something that is is right now not this sense of divine in I hope I do a good job for later I hope I um, don't mess up too bad and get in trouble and yeah that that creates a whole other way of of being able to relate to it because I don't feel like I'm going to get slapped on the wrist or some, you know, a candy at the end of the day or something like that. It's more of a presence that is supportive and good and cares for me but cares for everybody else too and is is something that we can all kind of plug into together. And then, you know, when you take away those concepts, you also take away um, something we've talked about before, but this like trying to figure the divine out all the time and just let it be the thing that you experience and that the how and the why and all that kind of stuff kind of don't matter. It's really just how how it, it you experience it. And I think living in that place really is, there's a lot of freedom in that, that we don't, we can try and talk about it so we have a shared experience, but it doesn't have to be this thing that has a lot of rules or a lot of framing or my way's right or your way's right or whatever. It's just trying to find ways to sort of have a more of a common understanding and common experience. Yeah, because what you're saying with this sense of like feeling terrible if you do something terrible or feeling good if you do something good, that's is not... Uh, you know, it's, it might be externalized to to God as conditioned by religion, but that's our emotions. You know, we in, intrinsically have a sense of guilt to rise up when we've made a mistake in our behavior. We've got shame that, you know, language of emotions, Carla McLaren talks about, rises up to remind us of a contract. Um, that we made for ourselves or shows us a contract that we didn't know we signed, you mm. know? So it's it's interesting to me that in so many ways religions condition the repression of emotion but then externalize that um, emotional gauge 
into a position of Godhead. You know, I'm thinking of like in Christianity in particular, there's very little emotion besides like grief has a value to it, lament has a value to it, zeal like or joy has a value to it. But then doubt, confusion, greed, you know, you can't even go there. You're not even, that's a sin, you know, to even feel greed or, and there's no room to check out the nuances of emotion. But then on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, Buddhism, many, many Buddhist teachings say that emotion doesn't even exist. If there is, as you rarely hear me say, if there is divine presence, because I've spent a lot of my life like in love with the divine mm-hmm. presence as I know its essence to be. But just for the sake of uh, this conversation, I'll say if there is a divine essence, as it moves and flows, wouldn't everything be a part of that? Including our emotion, including our sexuality, including like just thinking of the word spirit, you know, and how it's intrinsically animated I just think how often you know when we have conversations like this I think your mind goes there and my my mind goes to something more on the like practical like Mm. you know like how does this work out kind of thing practical is kind of a weird way to say that but like the but I was thinking about as you were talking about how the concept that we have of God means that we are children we have to perpetually be children and I think I was, what I was thinking about when you said that, because I thought about that right away, and then I was just sort of thinking about that, that lens was in while you were talking. I was just thinking about that same kind of thing with other religions where it's like creating concepts that absolve us from responsibility for ourselves because we're children, so we just need a bunch of rules. Or we're children, so we can say, like, those aspects of things don't even aren't even true, you know, or just ignore them, you know, like kind of what you do with... Repent. Just repent, say so many Hail Marys. Right, but it's all punishment stuff. You know, it's like bad parenting in a lot of ways. (laughs) Um, We grow up with those concepts all through, you know, as you get older through, at least through the church, you know, you have the pastors are like sort of a father figure, to, and everybody or the, the followers under the, you know, and so we just have these things, we have these structures set up where we just don't have to be responsible for ourselves. And that just seems particularly distancing from a divine source, but also really stunting for us as humans when we're just like, well, we're just children, so we just have to have these kind of we just live forever with a bunch of rules for children instead of being able to look at it, like you're saying, look at emotions and say like, there's this whole wide spectrum. I need to be, like I need to sort of be the master of them for lack of a better word. I have this whole range of spirituality. I'm going to like become the master of those. I have a whole range of, my intellect is something that I can become the master of and I'm I have the agency and responsibility and ability to do all of those things. And it's not just something that I hand over to someone else to tell me how to behave or how to think or what emotions are good or what are bad. I can learn from all of those things, but ultimately like, I have the responsibility to, to do that work, not just let someone else think it for me or figure it out for me. Well, it kind of brings us full circle. I mean, what brings this podcast full circle because the whole theme is we are the ones we've been waiting for. And it's really kind of loaded because on one hand, we say to, you know, Catholics or Christians, we are the ones we've been waiting for. That's like heresy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, no, Jesus is coming. We're... And, and I'm, I am tired of the New Age movement in so many ways, just pretty much just says God is only within, you know, and say we are like gods and goddesses because humanity is clearly 
not the, the level of mastery. And yet, I really do think that the source energy as I know it to be, or as I feel like is self-evident, is omnipresent, changeless, witness, illuminated, and ever-present. And we are the ones we're waiting for, waiting for it to show up, waiting for to become more skillful and maybe even you know I, I introduced the word origin of the word recover to regain consciousness and return to self-possession like the word you're using agency I really do think we we need to grasp that that the you know it's like the sense of when are the adults going to show up that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. It's yeah. that same kind of concept of like when we're perpetually kept in this childish state, then there's this part of being a child is someone else will bail you out all yeah. the time. So we can always say that like, well, God will come back and figure this all out for us or whatever. It's always just looking towards something else and thinking that that will just work it out for us where... I feel like that we are the ones we've been waiting for is really just this acknowledgement that like no one is going to fix anything for us. No one is coming to save us. There's not, I don't think there's like a, a savior's about to fall out of the sky and just wipe the world clean of everything that's a problem. Like if we want that stuff to happen, it's going to happen because we do it, not because some magical person shows up and does it for us. I think I would maybe add that to the list of things that this quarantine is teaching me to grieve Mm -hmm. is, you know, because I've been, I follow Marianne Williamson, who I really do love, and I, I think it's a shame that someone like her couldn't be president. Um, I don't know that I would have voted for her, but, (laughs) but she's, right now, she's, petitioning people over Instagram to pray for a miracle during this quarantine time. And I really had to investigate my complex feelings around that because, again, love the woman. I totally agree that we need to change our paradigm as humans. But I think part of that is stop praying for a fucking miracle and grieve. And for me, I'm thinking one of the big things that humanity has to learn how to grieve or accept something that is irretrievably lost or just does not work is this idea that even if it's the smallest notion left over from childhood that God is going to come and save us and just clean up our mess that's a big loss for pe- some people to really accept. And and it, for some people, it even means that, like, God is dead, mm. you know. And I've been witnessing a lot of people. They have kids who are sick or their job's lost or they're suffering so much anxiety. And right away, it means to them they have no more faith. There's no more God. And I'm thinking it's an invitation to elevate the divine or to put the divine back into this place of witness, experiencer, one who even magnetizes us to it, you know, and has us in aspiration, you know, aspire, spirit, the prefix A is to reach for, to reach for a higher place in ourselves. you know, I, I do think that that's something people need to grieve in order to come to terms with, all right, God's not going to help you, or God is going to help you in the sense of like, you have to learn or how to reorient toward your highest self, and God will always hold you you're not alone. You know, it's a real nuanced thing. It's hard to hard to even articulate. 
Yeah, and I think like there's just this idea of miracles as your solution, you know, is is kind of continues this concept that we're we didn't we're it's not our fault or and that's even not exactly what I mean, but like we just kind of sort of stupidly want to keep plunging forward without ever learning anything from where we've come from. As and I say that in a societal kind of like human race kind of way. And I think we have this idea that what God wants for us is this like, you know, I think there's a lot of bad teaching around God wants us to be wealthy and he wants us to be um he, like he wants all these good things for us in the definition of the way we design Oh, we man. define good things. We've talked about that for hours and yeah, hours. Yeah, and I won't go into Prosperity it, so. gospel right. and how New Agers think that um, abundance manifestation is something on its own. Anyway. I think one of the things that's worth investigating when that grief comes up is to think about all the ways that that has pervaded into the way that we think. It's like when you really look back at the history of the United States in particular, because that's the culture we're all in right now. That that thinking, um, that really that prosperity thinking was foundational to the development of this country. And it's so integrated into everything related to the divine. And so when you start to think of this concept of like, God is dead, or my understanding of God is dead, and have that grieving, you can also start to let go of all of this really problematic baggage that holds us back as a country, that gets us to a place where we'd elect somebody like Donald Trump that would never learn from, you know, can't listen to people who have any kind of, who know what they're talking about. This resistance to taking responsibility for our own well-being and our own, and I mean that in a big global sense, you know. Um, but there's also small ways that we do that and when it just has been so permeated through our whole all of our ways of thinking, it becomes a societal problem. It's a personal problem. It's a emotional problem. It's all of those things. Yeah. And I learned so much from you. <laughs> One thing I was thinking, you know, and I was, I always want to end up with a song. And when I was trying to figure out what's the right song, not only a song that we've sung together, but um, a song that's right for this episode. I was thinking of this idea of grace uh, and, and how it's so different. Its word origin of the word grace is so different from how Western religion has co-opted the word. You know, in Western religions have attributed grace with something kind of like you don't deserve it but God's going to clean up this mess for you mm-hmm. but the actual meaning of the word it comes from Latin gratis which is also formed the word grateful mm-hmm. it means thankful you know that what if it's not that we don't learn anything from our mistakes because we get this mercy from God that's going to clean them up. But what if our mistakes, all of our experiences, especially the hard ones, were there for our awakening and it's grace when we can be thankful for them. Mm -hmm. You know, I was even thinking about the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton. It was a Christian hymn, and he was an Anglican clergyman and who was pressured into service in the Royal Navy. Um, and then because he had sea skills when he left the Navy, he went to become a part of the Atlantic slave trade. Mm. And he was from Donegal, Ireland, which my relatives hail from, and there was this huge storm, and uh, his like he almost died. And when he was in the storm, he 
had this conversion experience where he called out to God and when he survived that experience he got out of the slave trade mm-hmm. and that he wrote Amazing Grace which then became um, an emblematic black spiritual mm-hmm. so it's I love that it's written in that spirit and what it's become. I just recently heard Aretha Franklin's version for the very first time. I don't know where I've been, but mm. it was incredible. And then also was the song that was sung at my mom's funeral. And man, I only think like if her ideas were changed around the idea of God, if she could have like been liberated from this idea of like you just have to behave it's just how things could have been different for her too yeah so will you sing amazing grace with me i don't know uh how my voice will be but i love singing with you so much i'm gonna take a few breaths first Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like like me. I once was lost. close with this um, poem by an anonymous Sufi poet Um, you can apply it to the essence of the divine or maybe someone um, who you've lost um, here it is it's from also from the movie The Shape of Water a beautiful film says, unable to perceive the shape of you, I find you all around me. Your presence fills my eyes with your love. It humbles my heart, for you are everywhere. Till next time. <laughs>